I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was going to die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews, and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast, where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. I want to welcome Megan Mazel. She is a first-generation college graduate from West Virginia. Her longtime dream of living abroad led to the foundation of Written Progress. That's a location-independent, feminine-forward team of technical uh, communicators serving teams with a climate mission. Written Progress takes uh, grant applications, policy briefs, academic manuscripts, and other big and scary documents off their clients' desks. The result, documented proof of work that get funders, policymakers, and top talent excited about talking to, uh, ta- taking your initiative to new heights. For those who want to build their, out their own toolbox, Written Progress also facilitates write shops and is currently developing a software tool to help climate professionals identify and act on often non-intuitive co-benefits and co-risks of their work. Megan, welcome. Thanks, Craig. What a great intro. Well, it's been looking forward to having you here. And and um, so let's just start with the, the first thing I asked you. You said a location independent. You, you Obviously, you grew up in West Virginia. Uh, you're American. Where do you live? So I've been in France for just about four years now. I'm coming up on my fourth year anniversary. And uh, France was a long-time dream of mine. I think I was maybe 16 when I heard French for the first time. Um, And it was absolutely enchanting to me. And I absolutely wanted to hear it coming out of my own mouth. And, you know, I was always a, a curious cultural traveler. I wanted to know how people live, what's in the grocery store, what do they do after work? Uh, you know, just normal everyday people. And I did a lot of study abroad programs and and the sort of thing that let me not necessarily visit the touristy places, but see how other cultures lived. The French was always there. And so even after I had established a career in the United States, I was still hell-bent on getting to learn French and to, to spend time in Europe. And so I sorted out eventually how I could keep my career going more or less with a few bumps in the road and transition to being able to choose where I was working from. You know, and and one thing about France, you know, there's, there's two towns that come to mind and you're going to hear me mispronounce them, but they, to me, they sound the same, but they represent different places. One, I think is con, which is cold and rainy. And then you have con, which is, (laughs) Warm and sunny. What what part of France are you in? So I'm closer to the second Cannes. Um, and actually, I just accidentally drove through Cannes on our road trip uh, this past May on the day that the festival was starting. And I was thinking like, wow, I knew Cote d'Azur was really superficial and 
you know, very focused on consumerism, but I didn't realize it was this bad. You know, it was very, very uh, flagrantly consumeristic. And I realized that the the festival was about to start and all these, you know, VIPs were in town and, and arriving and going to their hotels. And um, So, uh, yeah, I'm in Montpellier. It's on the southern coast, uh, about the same latitude as Nice and Marseille and Cannes. Uh, so we get that nice Mediterranean weather. It's a university city, very young and very hopping with culture and, and lots of events. Well, it sounds lovely. I, you know, I was telling you, I, I drove by there on my way to Nice, but I've never been there. But that uh, that southern coast of France just seems amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great place to be. This time of year, I make a, a weekly trip to the beach. Wow. How far away is the beach? Oh, it's um. you can go on public transit in summertime. It's maybe a 20 minute drive from where I live. Wow. I mean, that, that just seems like the, the dream. So you're you're living near the beach, living in this you know interesting culture. But you're you're still connected. What, what is it you do? I mean, so we covered it a little bit in the in the intro, like real simple simple language mm -hmm. what do you do for people so we do very simply we do marketing and communications for teams with a climate mission okay and climate mission would be i mean i, I think people know but just what, what's that mean what how do i know if i have a climate mission yeah so the reason we explicitly say climate mission is because a lot of organizations might be having a positive impact on climate change but it's not uh, codified as part of their focus. So for example, um, this is, I'm not in any way representing FedEx. This is just an example. Maybe FedEx is looking to improve their logistical efficiency to reduce fuel consumption. That has a positive change on, on climate, a positive impact on climate, but it's not necessarily part of their mission. And when fuel prices go down, they might change their strategy. So that, that actually taking the time to say part of our existence as an organization is to um, improve outlook for climate change is what's really crucial to us. That said, that can be a much broader um, range of organizations than you might imagine because there's so many interlinked things that affect climate and that climate impacts. I think a lot of us have probably heard of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, they range from um, basic healthcare access for humans to biodiversity and water conservation, and those all interrelate with climate. So we work with, for example, one of our clients does um, public software for good, and they focus on healthcare and homelessness. And we feel that those two elements are very much linked to climate action. And so we're thrilled to work with that organization and help them achieve their goals through you know, getting their grant applications written, um, communicating with policymakers about what they're doing, uh, getting their documented proof of work, getting their impacts up on their website so that people are able to see and understand it, even though it's kind of a complex topic. Okay. Well, and one of the things that we like to highlight on this show is people making an impact beyond themselves. And I mean, I hear that in your work that you're by mission, you're you're focused on companies that are making an impact. 
That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I just wrote an article last week on LinkedIn. Maybe we can link to it in case anyone is interested about um, how mission-driven businesses are systematically disadvantaged and some of the things that we can do as a community of mission-driven businesses that would just improve our success and our impact by emulating profit-driven businesses in a lot of ways, but also advocating for having some of the same structures, for example, business structure and financing structures that are just universally recognized for a profit-driven business. Okay. Now, how did you get into this? I mean, so take us back. You started in West Virginia. Now mm-hmm. you're in a town, I still can't pronounce, Montpellier. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's perfect. Um, how did, what happened between West Virginia and Montpellier? Yeah, so um, back in West Virginia, I think I was, I seemed to be born or had this very early sense of environmentalism. Um, I was, you know, sending my allowance to World Wildlife Fund as early as I can remember. And so when I went on to university to study, there was an obvious choice for me to study the environment. And I was particularly interested in how the human condition, for example, do we have healthcare access, how that impacts the environment. I did Peace Corps, um, if you've ever heard of that, in um, South America. It's a U.S. government program of volunteers. I was in Paraguay for about three years as a beekeeper. And that really, you know, sealed the deal for me in terms of, like, uh, working with humans and the environment and this coexistence. Um, And uh, climate change was rapidly becoming a major issue in the scientific community when I went on to graduate school in University of California. So that was the natural focus of my studies in community development and sustainability. Uh, I went on to work for University of California in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, and then continued working for The Wonderful Company, if you've ever heard of them. I think we've all seen the ads for pistachios and pomegranate juice. Um, They have a community development arm that I worked for for a while. Uh, But, you know, I was constantly thinking, why am I sitting at this desk writing? I was always the writer on every team I was on, no matter what project in what country. All my colleagues were always asking me to do the writing. And I was thinking, why did I move to this city that I didn't necessarily want to live in for this job and end up at a desk writing? Like the Internet exists. I could be anywhere doing the same work. And being that, you know, natural traveler and having that dream of living in France, I was really thinking like, I could do this from anywhere. I could be doing this from Europe. And so one day I uh, launched as a freelancer and proposed my services as a scientific writer. So someone who has the communication skills, but also understands what the scientists and particularly climate scientists were saying and could stand at that intersection and help them say it in a compelling way to the people that they needed to talk to to get things done. And so that's how Written Progress started. It was me freelancing. And you know, the, like all, I think, for most businesses, um, first year was a little slow, second year went well, and I said, okay, I think I can move now. And I got my visa and went to France. And then it exploded. And I couldn't keep up with all the demand and I couldn't do it myself anymore. And I wasn't even enjoying France because I was just working all the time. And so just as a coping mechanism, I made a little business online so that I could hire one copy editor to help me. And 
over the past three and a half years of the business being in existence, everything we've done has been a uh, response to demand. And, and, you know, and even bringing on team members, people would say, clients would say, oh, you live in France. Can you do work in French? We have this project in Niger. And I would say, no, I'm, you don't want me to work in French yet. I'm still learning, but let me find somebody. So I would tap my Peace Corps community and find someone who could do this work. And so everything we've done has been a response to what the climate action community needed from us to get where they needed to go. And that's brought us to where we are today. That's, that's an amazing story. And, you know, you, you tapped into something there that I think is important. Um, and and I'm going in terms of writing, you know, I, I think being able to connect with people is so more, so important, but it's about more than just language. So obviously you speak French and, you know, you very humbly say your French is not quite there, but even being able to write in French, isn't there something more than just having the language? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good point. Um, when, for example, I was living in France already when I was getting those requests from clients to do work in French. And when I would mention this to a friend casually over coffee, they'd say, well, I speak French, I can do it. And I'm thinking like, there's so much more than just speaking the language, you know, like, what percentage of the English speaking world would be qualified to do the work we're doing? Um not that it's the most difficult in the world, but just like who fits into that niche? It's a very, very small percent. And so I assume that the same is true of the French speaking community and any other language, really, that it's it's really an intersection of multiple skill sets where you're highly empathetic. You can put yourself in the shoes of the reader or the listener very effectively and connect with what they care about and start there and build toward the topic at hand that you can, you have the technical expertise to understand what the scientist or the engineer wants to say, and you can preserve the integrity and the detail of that. And you also know how to get it all into the software that you're using, be that Microsoft Word or any other software, and, and to create a beautiful, like visually compelling document as well. Yeah. And I think the, you know, there's so many cultural elements uh, and, and, you know, maybe they're less distinct, you know, moving within Western nations and Western languages, but they're still there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things, you know, for instance, um, when I'm reading something in English, I can almost always tell if the writer's from the UK or from the United States. Right. You know, the, the way they say things, yeah, I mean, the, the way they, uh, even spellings of words, but beyond that, the way they communicate ideas is different. And there's a cultural element to that. So yeah. I, th I, you know, and I think, you know, I, I think that's very wise. It would be easy to say, yeah, I speak French. We're going to take this on. But, uh, you know, I appreciate that, that you would say, no, there's this, this really needs someone else on it. So, um, so obviously now you're leading a, you've got a team of people. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. What does leadership mean to you? I have found, so just to, to kind of paint the picture here, I lead a fully remote team, meaning that I've never met some of the people on my team in real life. Um, 
we're all women, coincidentally. Uh, and as part of the structure of the business, it's important to me that everyone have a personal sustainability. So that means she gets to choose where she works. She gets to choose when her product, her productive hours are and to work during those hours. And she gets to choose when she says no to new work, when she wants to take time off. You know, it's just like, let us know that you're not going to be there. And that's it. There's no, there's no process. There's no permission. There's no limit. Um, so within all that, how do you create culture, workplace culture for gold standard work? and and uh, certain motivation and expectations for self and recognizing the value of your teammates. To me, that has been the great work of leadership on this little team is to create that culture at a distance uh, and to ensure that it's not just upheld, but that everyone is really, truly excited about buying into that sort of culture. Um, and it's been something that I expected I would be bad at because I'm an introverted person and that I've been pleasantly surprised to have good results in. I won't go so far as to say that I'm good at it because I think you have to do things many times before you're confident that you're really, truly good at it. Maybe it was just a stroke of luck, but we do have a really wonderful team culture. We have very high um retainer you know everyone has been on the team for at least a year if not the full three plus years of our existence and you know we cry together we laugh together we spend a lot of time talking through challenges and personal development and boundaries and what we want to learn next and what our personal goals are and and spending a lot of time talking about what we want the organization to be and and um, in some ways, it's scary to give up that control as a leader of, of what the organization is going to become. And I've personally found it to be a great relief because everyone on the team is at least as intelligent as I am, if not more. And so inevitably, I find that we come up with more interesting options and more creative solutions when I'm listening to them than when I'm talking at them. Well, I think one of the questions a lot of businesses are wrestling with, you know, you, I'm sure you've read that there's a big return to the office movement, but I think one of the biggest challenges as, as I've looked over the last several years of people working remotely is how do you create a, a culture when folks are remote? What's, what have you learned? What could you share with others as they're looking at creating, you know, maintaining or creating their own remote culture? Yeah, you know, I, um, so we were remote before COVID and it changed nothing about how we operated because we were already doing that kind of before it was cool. And then I found during COVID that I had kind of lost this like unique value proposition because everybody was remote all of a sudden. And now, you know, I'm kind of smirking as this back to the office thing's happening. Like I just saw Zoom called everyone back to the office. So if, you know, Zoom yeah. isn't Zooming, then <laughs> that feels like a foreshadowing of things to come. Um, so what I found to be a really good foundation for building a, what I think is an incredibly healthy uh, work culture is to regularly bring everyone together and to regularly elicit feedback on my own behavior and how I am showing up at work. 
So specifically, I have a monthly call with every person on the team. And I say, so how is it going? We talk about something that's happening in our personal lives. If the conversation wanders towards specific work for specific clients, I say, you know, I'm happy to make a call for that. But we're here to talk about your work life, your satisfaction, um, what is challenging for you, what's going really well. I have some feedback for you, but I'm going to hold it hostage. I'm not going to give it to you until you give me some feedback about something I could improve on. So that happens every single month with every team member. Uh, if I had a larger team, I would do that with my uh, leadership team only and would trust them to do it with with the subordinates under them. Um, in addition to that, we have a monthly uh, standing meeting for the whole team where we run through everyone's projects that they're working on. And that is mostly so that everyone knows what everyone else is working on. And those are my favorite meetings because I just walk away so impressed and mind blown at what my team is handling and what a great job they're doing and what amazing impacts they're having on the world. And then we have a quarterly meeting that we call the Witches Brew. And that is our, it's a two hour meeting. It's visioning, it's brainstorming, it's talking about what we love doing. Sometimes, for example, we'll have a topic like, um, you know, we'll all watch some videos on how you can employ AI. And then we'll come to the meeting with ideas about how we can make our systems better using AI and just dream together and laugh. We often take personality tests and share our results and what surprised us about those results. So those quarterly meetings are really like a um, safe to learn space and safe to dream space that meeting schedule so the the monthly with each individual person monthly project focused all call and quarterly all call really thinking and dreaming on a, a broader scale has been the foundation of a really wonderful culture where everyone's bought into the success of the organization, they're bringing ideas to me about what we can do better, or they're even implementing them themselves. Um, and they're excited to support each other. I really like the detail that you've you've put in that and how you've kind of structured it and segmented it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. You know, I, um, you know, two years ago, when I checked out, and I was in a coma, I, I would say that I accidentally had been doing those things. I didn't think I was as thoughtful as you you have been, uh, but it that regular communication did let the team run the business while I was in a coma. And, mm -hmm. and so I really like your structure. I think there's uh, quite a bit to learn from that. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> Can you talk about a white knuckled moment where you feel like your leadership was put to the test? You're faced with a tough decision and you weren't sure how it was going to work out. Yeah, um, fairly early in the business, I had a really good opportunity, or it seemed like a good opportunity, a referral from probably my best client, someone who needed a lot of help on a series of analyses and reports on food security under climate change scenarios. And um, our team was to carry a large part of this, this project. Uh, not only writing and researching, but also um, editing other writers and researchers. And early on, it was going very well. And I was really trusting the, the 
project manager as he was asking us for things beyond scope that uh, he fully was aware of of those asks and was going to adjust our ongoing scope of work to reflect those as we checked in. When I realized that wasn't the case and that he wasn't able to add budget to compensate for the additional ask he had made, I said, okay, no problem. I'm just gonna be really careful about following our scope of work and I'll let you know when I feel like things are creeping. Um, and unfortunately, the relationship really started to sour when I would set those boundaries and say, you know, I, I think this is pretty far outside the scope of work. Unfortunately, if you're not able to adjust, then then I won't be able to, to do that within the budget that you set for us. And um, this accumulated into a really perfect storm where he would uh, hold invoices hostage and, you know, fail to respond and not pay us. And I was also still having my team work to try to get to the next deliverable to invoice so that we could, um, you know, it was kind of like I, I needed to decide, do we stop now and acknowledge that we definitely won't get paid because we're not reaching the deliverable or do we keep pushing to reach the deliverable in the hope of getting paid eventually? And um, I, of course, needed to compensate my team while they were working. You know, I had nearly my whole team logging hundreds and hundreds of hours on this project. And I stopped paying myself completely. Uh, we had almost no money in our account. I was um, living off of savings. It was the only time in since I had left my job that I'd had to live off savings. And this person almost shut down our organization. And it was only through other good Samaritans in his organization that we eventually did get at least partially compensated for the work and that, you know, we were able to keep the organization running. Um, I was, it was a tough time. My team loved the work they were doing. It was high impact work on food security and agriculture and getting to work with all these climate scientists. And, you know, they were having a great time and I was doing my best to protect them from the chaos that was happening at the project management level and to ensure that they were fully and promptly compensated for their work and also was facing my own like personal financial demise um, and thinking, you know, I might have to get a job soon. Like I, and I can't run this organization and hold a job. It was, um, it felt like uh, placing bets, you know, where there were so many factors outside my control uh, that was, probably the biggest white knuckle moment. Uh, and then the second most white knuckle moment was when I was asked to respond to questions because that very same person was being investigated for Oof. similar behavior um, by his organization. And, you know, I thought like, do I put us on the line? You know, do I give fodder for gossip or reputational damage or do I do what's right you know and, and respond to the investigators questions so that they can make a an objective decision um so <laughs> both of the white knuckle moments came from the same person <laughs> wow that's you know and that I think anybody that runs any type of agency does any type of work at some point has faced the non-paying client and it's, 
a, a real challenge in how to handle it. But it also, I think, is a reminder of the importance of being very careful in the clients that you work with. Um, but the, you know, my two cents for people out there that hire folks like Megan, um, if you want the best work, if you want to stand out and get the most amazing work, be the fastest one at paying invoices because nobody does that. And Megan, I don't think your fees are going to impact the cash flow enough, you know, to change the course of the company. And so if, if people pay folks like you faster, doesn't that impact the way you work? Um, yes, it absolutely does. And, you know, we've learned some things about um, specific language that that particular person tried to take advantage of. You know, for example, we use word counts instead of page counts because we were getting, you know, just like itty bitty font and no margins to cram like a thousand words onto a page uh, to to force us, force our hand on, on doing more work than, than what we had committed to. Um, so we've learned about being precise and uh, have also always appreciate, you know, someone who who pays rapidly. I would offer, and I fully agree with you, you know, that that's such a gesture of goodwill to pay promptly. And some other things that someone who perhaps find themselves in a challenging situation or unable to pay a, a consultant or a service provider, just communicating, you know, saying like, hey, this is our a budget we're really limited what can we do with that and how can we make sure that we get it across the finish line with that amount of budget or this has come up I'm so sorry like what can we do to wrap up the project promptly recognizing that I'm not going to be able to pay you you know just that sort of like again goodwill gesture of I want everybody to get a fair shake is uh, more than enough I think we all know that that unexpected things happen too yeah well, Megan, this has been great. Thanks for coming on Leaders and Legacies. How do people reach you? Yeah, so I am personally fairly active on LinkedIn and anyone who wants to, I don't know, get a, a catchy version of their title or whatever piece they're going to be putting out or um, just wants to share an idea or get my take on a problem, definitely ping me on LinkedIn. I would love to chat. Uh, if you'd like to have a complimentary consultation, for example, you know, dive a little bit deeper into an issue you're having, or if you're potentially thinking about working with us, you can book that on our website. Which is writtenprogress.com. Did I get that That's right? That's it. That's exactly All right. right. Well, Megan, thank you again. Thank you so much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. This is Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making an impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to alliesforme.com slash guest and sign up there. If you got something out of this interview, we would love you to share this episode on social media. Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on social media and let them know about the show, including the hashtag Leaders and Legacies. I love seeing your posts and suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss anything, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. And it means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. 
If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.